Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast's very first episode. I am absolutely thrilled and abundantly grateful that you're here with me to celebrate the launch of my podcast to the world. You can find my podcast on my website, which is www.rootsofthespirit.com. It's also available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So once you locate the podcast, please subscribe and rate and review the episode. I'd greatly appreciate it. As mentioned in the opener, the purpose of the Roots of the Spirit podcast is to provide a platform to have honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and so many other social justice issues that intersect. The podcast will currently be released on Thursdays every two weeks. The format of the podcast will include interviews with veterans of the civil rights movement, the next generation, which I like to call children of the movement, and the young people who are on the forefront of so many different social justice movements today. I will be speaking to our multi-generational guests about a variety of topics, history at the foundation, the civil rights movement itself, the subsequent movements that have spurred as a result, everyday racism, institutionalized racism, the impact of racism on our mental, physical, and spiritual health, education, and a multitude of other topics that fall under the umbrella of identity, social justice, racism, anti-racism. There will also be times where I take the mic myself and have solo episodes and talk to you about what's on my mind, something I learned, maybe I attended an awesome social justice workshop or institute because ultimately the purpose of the podcast is to have conversations but also identify tangible ways in which people can become involved in the movement. Also resources. What's already out there? Who's already doing the incredible work and how you can become involved? You may be wondering what brought me to this understanding about myself to know that part of my calling is to serve as a bridge. Well I'll give you a snapshot of my background. However just know that you'll get to know me more in Ultimately, as the podcast moves forward, whether it's in dialogue with one of my fabulous guests or also on the solo episodes, because everything that I've experienced has shaped the person that I am and has helped me understand my role, where my passion lies, and how I can ultimately give back and contribute to the movement. So I only think that it's fair if I'm going to be asking my guests questions about their background, their heritage, identity, experiences with racism that I share with you mine. So here goes. I grew up in a small, small, small town in northern Ontario, Canada called Kennebec. Both of my parents are originally from the United States. My mother is originally from Arkansas and she is black. And my father is from Illinois and he is white. They met at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale where they were both students as well as members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. This was at the height of the civil rights movement. So they were very active in nonviolent protests and sit-ins and boycotts and many other nonviolent practices to oppose racial injustice. My father was drafted to Vietnam and he and my mother were morally opposed to the war. So he applied to be 
become a conscientious objector, and his application was denied. There's an incredible story about my father's application to become a conscientious objector and what that entailed, and that could be an episode of its own. But just in a nutshell, his application to become a conscientious objector was denied, and because of their deep moral opposition to the war, they packed up their two Volkswagen buses and headed to the border and made their way to Canada. They ended up landing in Toronto, Canada, which, to my understanding, there was a community that embraced, quote, draft dodgers, as they were called, and provided resources and guidance for people coming from the United States in opposition to the war. They spent a few years in Toronto and ultimately found a piece of land in northern Ontario, Canada, where they settled amongst expatriates, as they've been called, from the United States, who were also opposed to the Vietnam War. So that's where I grew up. I grew up on a farm. I am one of six of their children. I'm the second youngest. Growing up on the farm was incredible. I think that the outdoors are the greatest classroom for children. And in hindsight, I wouldn't have it any other way. My parents and older brothers and sisters literally built our house. We also had a barn and all kinds of animals, horses, cows, chickens, We always had one special dog or several dogs at any given time, cats. Our garden was one acre and we grew our own vegetables, potatoes, onions, squash, spinach, broccoli, everything under the sun, all kinds of herbs and fruit trees in the summer. We had a raspberry patch that we would literally get lost in. My parents butchered their own meat, pigs and cows, goats. We got our eggs from our very own chickens. It was just an abundant beautiful farm that I grew up on. And never once as a child did I think to myself, hmm, let me look around my family and think about the color of my skin. It's kind of beige, which is why my mother gave me the middle name Amber. She said I was kind of Amber-esque when I was born. But I never looked at myself or my parents and questioned it. It wasn't until I went to school that my identity was brought into question. My parents homeschooled my older brothers and sisters. My top brother and sister, Morningstar and Isaiah, didn't go to school until the ninth grade. And then my other brothers, Saul and Ethan, I think they started public school a little earlier. But when it came down to the the third set of kids, myself, Spirit, and my little sister, Layla, we entered school in kindergarten. My point in mentioning that is to illustrate that from a very, very early age, it wasn't in my home that I was questioned, our identity was questioned. It was in school. It was children in my classroom who would call me and my brothers and sisters names, the N-word, call us brownie, and just make snide remarks on a consistent basis. And it made me feel like an aberration, like I didn't belong and very isolated. I tend to speak from my own personal experience, but I do know that my brother's experience physical violence because of the color of their skin. So we all have our respective experiences on what it was like going into public school and being the only brown children in any given classroom. The intensity of the bullying for me was heightened in about the fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. However, one of the great things that I would like to convey through all of this is even though it was a very tense atmosphere for me, I always had one friend. I had one friend in each grade who I remember to this day. So I say that to say, looking at bullying and how it manifests itself and racism, I had allies as early as first and second grade. So it's very interesting to understand like 
how bullying impacted me, but also how the folks who were courageous enough to be my friend, how that played out and how what that means to me in my life as well, and how that can be something we can learn from in school, but also in our greater communities and in the work that we do. So I'm going to pause here and take you back to when I was seven years old to tell you about the very first time that I ever had an inkling of my mother, Minnie Jean Brown Trickey's role in American history. So from a child's perspective, I was seven years old, my little sister Layla was five, and my mother took us on a train ride across the country from Canada into the United States to visit our family in Little Rock, Arkansas. When we arrived in Little Rock, I was just so excited to visit my grandmother, my aunt, and my cousins. I remember what the air smelled like and the trees, and I could feel the very warm breeze. It was September in 1987. So as kids, we ran and played, and I just thought it was so cool, my grandmother's accent and how they talk in Arkansas. I mean, I'm not saying that in a silly way. I'm just saying for my Canadian-tuned ear, that was so cool to hear. In other words, it was just a treat for all of my senses to be in Little Rock in 1987. One day while we were visiting, we went to a mansion. That's how it was described to us. We were going to a mansion. And I was excited because as a kid, I knew what a mansion was. It was a big house. Really, really, really excited. And so when we arrived, it was mostly adults. Everybody was dressed up and there were very few kids. So there was a little girl that the adults introduced us to. And me and my little sister, Layla, ended up playing with her the whole time. I remember being out in her yard thinking, wow, she has two play structures and we don't even have one and she's an only child. Those were the childish thoughts that were going through my mind. But I keenly remember, it's something that stayed with me for the rest of my life, is that I really didn't have an understanding of what the purpose of this occasion was. And I'm not sure if I asked or she volunteered, but she ended up articulating the purpose behind this grand occasion and why we were at this mansion. So she explained that in 1957, black and white students couldn't go to school together. And there was a governor who prevented black students from going to the all-white Central High School. Ultimately, what happened is the president stepped in, guaranteed the constitutional rights of the black students, and they were able to go to school. Obviously, I don't recall her breaking it down in such elaborate language. However, I did get the gist that the point was this occasion was commemorating the anniversary of the black students integrating the school, which now we know as the Little Rock Nine. I had that experience. I had a grand old time with my family in Arkansas. That kind of made sense to me, but kind of didn't. I had absolutely no context to put it in. Nevertheless, we kept playing. We played in the yard. We roller skated in her basement. I was like, wow, you can roller skate in your basement? There were all types of stuffed animals. We had a ball. And according to my aunt, at the end of the night, we were like, please, please, can we sleep over? Please, please. And unfortunately, we couldn't. But we just had a great time. And that was that. We went back home to Canada and kept living our lives. It wasn't until 1992 that that memory made any sense. I was downstairs in my living room. We were living in Ottawa, Canada at the time. And I heard my mother upstairs celebrating, screaming, clapping, just like really excited about something. So I went upstairs and I'm like, what's what's so great? Why are you so excited? And she said, Bill Clinton, who was formerly the governor of Arkansas, had become elected president of the United States. And at the tender age that I was, I was like, who's Bill Clinton? <laughs> 
So she explained that when we went to Arkansas in 1987 and attended that grand event at the mansion, that was actually the governor's mansion, and Bill Clinton was the current governor at the moment. And come to find out, the little girl that my little sister Layla and I had been playing with that whole time was Chelsea Clinton. I tell that story because I did not grow up knowing that my mother was one of the Little Rock Nine. It's not something that she sat us down and explained to us. It's something that I got in bits and pieces. And the story evolved and grew over time until I had a firm understanding that my mother was involved in a civil rights event that shifted the consciousness of the United States as well as the world. So, okay, Bill Clinton is now the president. Now it makes sense what we were doing at the governor's mansion. So Bill Clinton was honoring the Little Rock Nine strategically at the governor's mansion because in 1957, the governor, Orville Faubus, who was in position, was the one who was blocking the students from entering. So it was the first time that a governor actively welcomed the Little Rock Nine to the governor's mansion and also accompanied them to Central High School to commemorate the occasion. I'm starting to learn that my mother was involved in such a grand historical event. And I'm day by day, I'm becoming more empowered to look at myself in a different light. So now my understanding is growing. Now I know that we were in Little Rock to commemorate the 30th anniversary at the governor's mansion. Then my little sister and I attended an event where my mother was a speaker and they played Eyes on the Prize. They played a clip of the Central High Crisis explaining what happened during that time. All of the politics, but mind you, it's a black and white documentary. So as kids, sorry, but it wasn't all that entertaining and not a lot of the information was retained. The next level of understanding came when Melba Patillo Beals, one of the Little Rock Nine, released her book, Warriors Don't Cry, published by Scholastic. I remember the book arriving in the mail and thinking, wait a minute, so there's an actual book that I might be able to find in my library at school that has your name in it, mother, that talks about an experience that you endured as a teenager? The next layer was in 1993 when Disney came out with the Ernest Green story, which was a Disney depiction of the Central High Crisis. And at that time, the lead actor playing Ernest Green one of the nine was Morris Chestnut. So I knew Morris Chestnut because I think it was the year before that Boys in the Hood came out. And my brothers and sisters, we watched that movie about a hundred times. So I was like, wait a minute. So there's a Disney movie called The Ernest Green Story. Morris Chestnut from Boys in the Hood is playing Ernest Green. And there's another famous actress, Monica Calhoun, who's playing Minnie Jean, who's my mother. Wait a minute. This is bigger than you're leading me to believe. So again, the questions started rolling in. I became so interested and I remember watching the Ernest Green story and just being choked up with tears and looking at what it was like for the Little Rock Nine to go to Central High School, the abuse they endured being the first black students to be at a formerly all-white high school, the fact that it took soldiers from the 101st Airborne to ensure their constitutional rights to attend the school. My mind is getting more and more blown every day. I think the ultimate kicker was one day I was sitting at home our phone rang. I answered. It was my sister Morningstar. And she said, where's Jean? Where's Jean? We call our mother and father by their first name. So where's Jean? Where's Jean? She's right here. What's going on? Why are you so excited? She's like, oh my God, the Oprah Winfrey show called. So that was it. I was like, mother, this is ridiculous. You never sat us down to tell us, okay, I was involved in a desegregation crisis when I was in high school. I'm keep, I keep getting these bits and pieces. And now the story is really beginning to unfold. So so you can imagine the excitement that I felt at the age of 16 when my mother was a guest on the Oprah Winfrey show. 
So what ended up happening is the bullying started to subside around the seventh and eighth grade. And that was around the time that I began to understand about my mother's past and my mother's history. She was enduring spitting, name calling, getting kicked down the stairs and had to have a soldier to take her to and from class. So here I was enduring name calling and not getting picked in gym class and never getting invited to the parties or never getting a Valentine on my desk and feeling an isolation and not feeling welcome in my classroom. But when I learned my mother's story, it gave me a confidence and it empowered me in a way that I had never known before. So I became so excited about learning this story. And in the eighth grade, I actually had the courage to ask my one of my teachers if we can watch the Ernest Green story in my classroom. She was my first teacher of color in life and the only black teacher in our entire school. And I remember her being very receptive to that. And that, that was the beginning of my activism was about in the eighth grade. I went on to high school and I actually did the opposite of my mother. I had the opportunity to attend Lisger Collegiate Institute, which is a premier public high school. I went there for the ninth and 10th grade, but I didn't really feel like a part of the student body. I had an okay time and I learned a lot, but it did not have the diversity to support and empower me as I moved through my journey of loving myself, of respecting myself, and being able to see myself as a fully realized human being in light of the fact that the last 10 years of my life had been under attack for being a brown kid. So I did the complete opposite of what my mother did. My little sister Layla and I begged and begged and begged and begged and begged to go to a public high school across town that was incredibly multicultural called Woodruff High School. So if you were to look at the academic standing of both schools, Lisger wiped Woodruff out of the water. However, it had the diversity that I needed in my life. So we begged and begged and begged and she finally agreed and we ended up going to Woodruff High School. I graduated from Woodruff in 1998 and we moved to the United States in 1999. My mother worked in the Clinton administration. Her title was Deputy Assistant Secretary for Workforce Diversity in the Department of the Interior. Around the time that Clinton left office, my uncle Bobby Brown, who was a powerful activist who founded the Black United Youth in Little Rock, Arkansas, became sick with cancer. So my mother went to Arkansas to be with her family, visit my uncle. Unfortunately, he died from cancer. But my mother decided at that time she wanted to stay in Little Rock. It had been decades since she lived in Little Rock. My little sister and I, Layla, decided let's move to Los Angeles. I had this dream of becoming a movie star in LA. So I convinced her and we decided we'd hit the road and move to LA. Well, we didn't have very much money, and we decided to stop in Little Rock, where my mother had recently moved to. One day turned to a week, a week turned to a month, a month turned to a year, and a year turned to 10 years. So on my journey to Los Angeles, one of the best experiences of my life unfolded. The fact that I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, never thought in a million years that I would ever live in the United States, let alone in Little Rock, where my mother's family was from, where my grandmother lived, where my aunt and uncle and cousins lived, and where Central High School was desegregated and my mother being at the heart of that movement unfolded. So the 10 years that I spent in Little Rock is an episode of its own. Another twist of fate is the fact that a few years earlier when I was was 18, I worked for a program called Young Canada Works for Parks Canada. 
And the irony of that is when I moved to Little Rock, Central High School had been recently designated a National Historic Site and operated by the National Park Service, which is the parallel agency to Parks Canada. So I had experience in that area. So I applied for a seasonal position at the Little Rock Central High School National Historic Site and was hired part-time while I attended the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. And I ended up spending 10 years working at the historic site from an entry-level position to managing the Division of Interpretation and Education at the historic site. The experience that I had meeting and greeting people from around the world who came to visit the historic site, who remember the desegregation crisis unfolding in real time. They remember where they were. They remember what it felt like. They remember what they were thinking. They remember seeing it on the front page of the newspaper. White, black, green, purple. People who lived in Little Rock during that time. White students who were involved in the desegregation crisis, whether they were active segregationists, whether they stood by and did nothing, or were some of the handful of, quote, nice kids that attended Central during the crisis. I was involved in an oral history project where we interviewed the Little Rock Nine, the white students, cops, soldiers from the 101st Airborne, the Arkansas National Guard, people who lived in the community. So in other words, while I was working there, this piece of my history, this piece of my mother's life was revisited in a way that we couldn't possibly imagine. It was such a rich experience, but also very painful for my mother, also my grandmother, Imogene Brooks Brown, my aunt, Phyllis Brown, my cousins, and everyone who gathered around my grandmother's table to talk about something that happened decades earlier, something that impacted their lives forever. Very, very painful. Very painful. And I'll tell you more about it as the podcast unfolds, but I want to give you an understanding of where my activism comes from. Initially, because I felt disempowered as a young person, as a young brown person, I didn't feel that I had the courage to speak up for myself. And then once I learned my mother's story, it's like something came over me, this streak of resistance and this power came over me and I felt powerful for the first time and I felt like I stood on the shoulders of giants. So I want to pass that on. I ended up leaving Little Rock, Arkansas and working at a historic site in Seattle for a couple years, which was a great learning experience as well. And then I reunited with an old friend, Hisham Tafik, who ended up being my fiance and ultimately husband. And I moved to New York, and I've been here for about five years. The fact that Hisham and I ended up together is pretty interesting within itself. Me, my mother being one of the Little Rock Nine, and Hisham, his father, Sheikh Tafik, was a student of Malcolm X. He studied in Egypt, and upon return to the United States, founded the Mosque of Islamic Brotherhood, which is the first African-American mosque in the United States. So you can only imagine the conversations that take place in our home. So there's so much that goes into the evolution of Spirit Tafik, of my experience and why I am so adamant about providing a platform to have honest conversations because I didn't have that when I was a young person. And as I grew into high school and became more and more interested in becoming an activist, I want to be a part of the movement. So Roots of the Spirit is my platform. So I want to put the lessons that I've learned out into the universe. So as I said in the beginning, Roots of the Spirit is the culmination and continuation of the work that I've been doing over the last couple decades. I want to serve as a bridge. I want to use my experiences to spark conversation, enriching dialogue, and find tangible, concrete ways in which we can 
work together to create environments where young people don't feel isolated. They're not bullied. And as adults, we have the tools that we need to be able to help our children grow in a nurturing environment that welcomes all children. Because I didn't have that growing up. And my mother didn't have that growing up. My way of giving back is to try to make it better for the next generation. I'm inspired by young people that are doing very courageous, dangerous work to push the needle of justice forward. So we can't be silent. We have to speak up. Just like the Central High Crisis in 1957, you have to make a choice. You can't stand on the sideline and say, I don't see what's going on. Yes, it's very clear what's going on. You have to speak up. When I think about my nieces and nephews, and in particular my niece Miyako, who reminds me so much of myself, she's so happy and joyful and loving and just sunshine. Like you look at her and you feel lit up. When I look at Miyako and I see myself, I have no choice. I have to continue the work. I have to serve as a bridge so that my niece and all my nieces and nephews and all the children, the next generations that come behind, have a better world. It's my passion, it's my calling, it's my purpose. So I hope I've inspired you to join the Roots of the Spirit movement. Once again, you can find the podcast on SoundCloud as well as Apple Podcasts. You can head over to my website, www.rootsofthespirit.com. I also have a Roots of the Spirit Facebook and Instagram. So I hope you like and subscribe and join the movement. Special shout out to my very, very, very good friend, Quincy Q Note Watson, who is a producer who created the Roots of the Spirit opener music. Shout out Q Note. Well, thank you so much for taking this journey with me. It's it's not easy. And as I describe on my website, I said that I'm going to be growing Roots of the Spirit naturally and in real time. So what that means is I'm open to being vulnerable, to making mistakes to correcting my mistakes, to indulge in this difficult topic of race, racism, social justice, and also our very tumultuous interconnected history. If you have ideas for guests or show topics or questions that you'd like to have discussed on the podcast, please send me an email via my website or send me an inbox on my Instagram or Facebook, and I will be glad to incorporate it into the podcast. Thank you so much. I really, 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 really appreciate it. This is uh, my life's passion, and so I feel really excited about what can come of this podcast, but I can only do it with your help. So thank you so much for joining the Roots of the Spirit movement. In Roots and Love, Spirit.